0: We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country.
1: If there is one principle that best serves the differing needs of all Australians, it is liberty. There is a core of liberty in every individual with which no one can or should interfere. Government is ill-equipped to promote human happiness. This can only come from within the individual.
0: That was Senator Amanda Stoker delivering a powerful maiden speech in Federal Parliament a little over three years ago. It was a speech that gave us a foretaste of the values Senator Stoker would argue for powerfully and consistently on the floor of Parliament and outside. Personal dignity, liberty, a modest role for government and the importance of upholding the role of the families. Some might say that makes her a conservative but to me she's a quintessential Australian liberal in the tradition of Robert Menzies. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre and it's my pleasure to invite Senator Amanda Stoker to join me for a water cooler conversation.
1: Thank you for having me Nick.
0: Let's talk about you first Amanda, your family and the part they played in forming your liberal values.
1: We were- we were just a regular Australian family. You know, my, my dad's a plumber. Um, my mum was working as a retail assistant in a chemist when I was a kid. And um, we lived in what was then Mark Latham's seat in in Werriwa. And my my first awareness of politics really was during the recession that Keating said we had to have. And I remember my... My dad working seven days a week, extraordinary hours, um, you know, but mum and dad still really struggling to to make things work uh, financially. And in my sort of young consciousness, I was going, how is it that people who are good people, who try hard, who do the right thing, who aren't self-indulgent, could still find this so hard and then to compare it to how they did exactly the same thing under the Howard years and prospered just blew my mind and I had to understand why and so that was the beginning of my starting to read around um politics and political philosophy and um all other things that were far too nerdy for your average teenager and I pretty quickly reached the conclusion that my set of beliefs aligned with that of the Liberal Party. I I could see that big governments didn't understand the way people like my parents tried to go about reaching their potential and I saw the way what you know we call in a philosophical sense civil society but what just groups of individuals who see a problem in their community and just go about fixing it can do so much better than a big faraway government ever could, um, and that really spoke to the life we were living in in southwestern Sydney and um, the the way I saw the many families, um, a lot like ours, you know, trades and um, and retail workers and. Um, all just good people who wanted to achieve what are in the grand scheme of things really big things for themselves and their families. They wanted, they wanted a home. They wanted um, the confidence of knowing they could support themselves no matter what. They wanted to be a good example to their kids, even if they weren't from especially educated or privileged backgrounds and they wanted to um, be a part of something bigger. And all of those things I think are articulated really wonderfully by Menzies. Um, a lot of a lot of people like to try and twist the things that Menzies had to say for whatever sort of political objective they've got. But you couldn't you couldn't but admit that he understood that the ambition of ordinary Australians to have family. That they can support and be proud of, and aspire to house them, and clothe them, and feed them, and um, do so in relative peace and happiness from government. Parts <laughs> of um, the the building blocks of society. So um, that part really spoke to me.
0: Could we describe you perhaps as a second generation Howard Battler? I mean, your father, your father's. Job as a as a plumber, you know, there there was a time not so long ago when Labour would have naturally assumed that plumbers would vote for Labour because they're labouring people and they used to be unionised, of course. But that that changed quite dramatically, didn't it? In in the nineties, with Howard, the Howard Battlers were, you know, tradesmen who become small business people and and therefore related much more to liberal values.
1: I think that's right, and second generation is not a bad way to describe it but in many ways the fishery of um, the Howard Battlers ambition being understood by a government that um, got what they were about and supported their right to aspire and because of that my generation have been able to um, in many ways, achieve my parents or my parents' generations' objectives for this generation, and that's mm. a pretty exciting thing. But I also think that's a um, a political legacy we still need to lean into. The this party, as I see it, lies in um, the the tradesmen. And the teachers and the pharmacists and the nurses of our suburbs, um, much more than it necessarily does of the people we might have once associated with, um, mm-hmm. you know, the old elite or old money.
0: Well, as I warned you, this conversation is likely to take many detours, uh, one of which we might venture down now. I, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Those professions, the the hand workers, if you like, and the heart workers, the people who work with their hands and the people who work in the caring professions, they, they are very much um, the kind of people that Menzi spoke about. Uh, and uh, and yet what I worry about is, is uh, the way everybody now is being channeled into university, you know, to be a head worker. If you don't go into university, you're considered a second class citizen. And um, as you know, um, you know, the number of Apprentices has dropped quite considerably. I think you know, managing to recover slightly under some of the measures the government's taken. But you obviously took that route into academia and and uh, and you've done very well out of it in law and in parliament. But do how do we how do we actually get more people to take those really rewarding jobs more seriously?
1: I do agree with you that there is a very unhealthy um, push for everybody to um, think that they need to go to university in order to set themselves up for a great future, and it's just false. For a significant cohort of people, um, university will give them frustration and a nice big debt um, and not altogether better prospects than they would have had um, had they pursued something to which they were much better suited, um, an example I'll give you is that when I was at the bar, I used to part-time um, teach as a sessional lecturer for um, one of the um, one of the universities in our regions, and service was very accessible for people who were um, part of this decentralised country. They could participate whether they were in Longreach or whether they were in the city and um, there is virtue in that. But by because we have in this country so many universities and um, there is in many ways a commercial imperative for all of them, they were admitting people to my mind who would not necessarily have what it takes to be a great lawyer. Mm. And um, that's a problem. You're setting up people for disappointment and frustration and failure when you can see that they have many gifts. It's just not this, yeah. <laughs> um, and when you put that together with the fact that you can earn a much better living as um, a very capable trade than you necessarily can as a mediocre lawyer, um, we're not we're not really being fair to the individuals involved.
0: No, no, I think I think that's right. And, and building people up. For disappointing experiences at university when they could do something much more profitable uh, and uh, not build up the debt.
1: And in doing so, subjecting them to a whole lot of sort of political indoctrination that often makes them, um, you know, inadvertent participants in um, a politically, I'd suggest, harmful process.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, indeed, indeed. Um, what was your university experience like? Well, first of all, where did you go to university, and you know, how active were you in politics?
1: So I went to school in Glenfield at, at Helston AG, and I adored school. Um, I'm a nerd from way back, and I had wanted to go either to Wollongong Uni or the University of Western Sydney with a bit of um, my, I guess, local parochialism at play. But um, Sydney University offered me. Um, the biggest scholarship of um, those uh, I had been offered and so my parents had sort of said oh that's a lot of money can you just give it a go (laughs) and so I did and um, it was ultimately a very good life choice in the sense that um, an education there did open doors but um, it was there that I joined um, the Liberal Party, it was there that I joined Uh, my liberal club and made a cohort of friends who care deeply about the future of this country, many of whom I still count among my close mates now. And um, ever since, the the values of this party as fought for by its organisation has been an important part of, of life, so much so that it was on the campaign trail that I met my beautiful husband. (laughs)
0: <laughs> were you, were you I, I read that I read that I think in an interview you gave some time back I, well my question is did you did you meet him because you were trying to get him to vote liberal or
1: if I tell you the story okay. it reveals terrible human flaws um so <laughs> I had been campaigning with um Paul Messina who was the candidate for the seat of Camden in the John Brogdon election and so I'm, I'm taking your way back and I've been going out with paul all the time on the campaign trail and he didn't have a lot of help and he's he was a lovely bloke i'm sure he still is i just don't see him much these days and um i he and i spent a lot of time together knocking on doors and and popping things in letterboxes and the like and one saturday i had been to a wedding for a friend of mine the night before and was designated driver you know spent the whole night driving everyone home and overslept and i woke up late and in a flurry, went, oh, no, I'm going to let Paul down. This is terrible. Um, and with last night's makeup on and last night's updo, um, threw on a campaign shirt and ran out the door. When I rolled up at Charlie Lynn's house, which is where we were meeting to, to do this um, campaigning, or we kind of using his house as the campaign base, there was this large group of guys who I had relatively recently met through the Young Liberals and, as often was the case at the time in the Young Libs, um, I was the only girl there, and I was mortified that I looked like I'd rolled out of a dumpster. And um, in my sheer embarrassment um, and vanity, let's be, let's be frank here, um, I volunteered to, in the pairing up of who we went door knocking with, do it with the one bloke I'd never seen before because I was pretty sure I'd never seen again. Um, and as it turned out, um, we got along rather well, and um, Adam and I turned a happy day of door-knocking into um, a date, and um, to conflate a few things, we've lived happily ever after. We've been married 16 years.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm know not too many political arguments in your household, which always helps. Um, Amanda, uh, you entered uh, Parliament, I say, 2018, and... Uh, the 99th woman to enter the Senate. That's terrific after the first uh, being Dane and Edith Lyons, of course. Um, I I was very um, struck with something you said in your maiden speech uh, when you were talking about the family. Uh, When the government automatically steps in, the role of the family is changed. It's not simply about money, because if it were, the only impact would be on the budget bottom line. Government intervention diminishes the role and expectations of family. This, in turn, removes shared bonds and experiences and starves families of moments that build love and trust. These moments teach us compassion, respect and gratitude. Uh, you know, I, 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 was, your analysis, I think, is strikes a chord with me, uh, but more so the sort of centrality of the family, the family as being, you know, the best the best unit of social cohesion we have. Uh, Menzies, of course, uh, was very big on that. But uh, I wonder if we've become a little too shy now to stand up for families.
1: Look, I think so. Um, there's, there's at least part of the political kind of commentariat who want to conflate the idea of valuing family with some kind of notion of, um, intolerance or judgmentalism or um, all of the all of the slurs that you can use to call someone intolerant these days. Um, when when I said what I did in my maiden speech and it's still a matter I really strongly believe um, and it's connected to that civil society point, right? but every time we ask a school, to teach something to children that really should be shared by parents, you take away an opportunity for you know a mother and a daughter to build trust as they work through something that's that's sensitive, or um, you know uh, whether it's a homework task that that person is struggling with, and as a parent, you've got to grow your patience and. Um, get to know your child and their strengths and weaknesses better and, and help them through it and overcome together with the bond that you build in the process or whether you think about it in terms of you know as we age um, this this growth in our aged care sector speaks to um okay in some circumstances a real need but it's also a reflection of a change in the way that we as families are, coping with that stage of life and while it might make some things easier day to day we pay a heavy price in the sense that we 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 miss out on okay a a times painful but ultimately very meaningful part of life as we hold the hands of the people who shaped us as they are prepared for what's next and these things might not reduce well into um, numbers and figures, but they are in many ways the meaning of life. These are um, the kinds of moments we look back on. They are the relationships on which we depend. It cannot, even if it wanted to, replace that. No, no welfare check, no um, extra hour of school time, no... Um, aged care home, however well-meaning, can replace that. And um, when we talk about social isolation or or mental health concerns, a lot of it comes back to us as a society becoming more disconnected. And we might have trouble illustrating it in a policy-by-policy way, but the cumulative effect of... Asking less of us as families and asking more of our governments is, I think, a big background cause behind some of the drivers of the big intractable social problems um, that, to many people, seem not to have a solution.
0: Yeah, I think the um, the, the 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 outright attack on the family unit by by many activist groups, uh, Black Lives Matter I- included. I mean, the the, the the nuclear family is one of the many things that they they are fighting against. Um,
1: yeah, they say it like it's a pejorative.
0: Yeah, yeah. It seems to me to be a very uh, dangerous thing indeed, and, and surely it's up to good people like us, people like you, to speak out more loudly and in policy terms, you know, ensure that the government's... Attitude to, uh, you know, say taxation or or any of these other areas, uh, um, childcare even, you know, works for women who want to stay at home or men who want to stay at home, as well as for those who want to go out to work. We're so we're so such a hurry to get women out into the workplace, but um, uh, many of them perhaps don't have the option they once did to stay at home.
1: We are genuinely the party of choice, and so. I'm all for women who want to make a work contribution. I'm that kind of person myself. Um, And I think we should provide every support for people who want to um, be in a committed relationship, um, have a nuclear family and still have a great career. But if you are a kind of family that wants to structure it differently and um, feel it's part of your calling to be at home for a period of time, um, that is something that is equally valuable and Um, should be respected and supported by governments, um, in my view. There's an important, I think, piece of research that gets missed sometimes when we talk about um, productivity and when we talk about um, workforce participation and how that feeds productivity regularly or meaningfully try and put numbers around the savings that come in the long term from helping families turn out well, helping um, to make sure that the choices that are being made by families in the interest of their children are genuinely those they think are going to bring the best out in their kids because um, if we don't get those early years right, it has um, social costs and economic costs that span the entire life journey. And um, I think we might think differently about the cost of uh, for instance a parent being at home in the early years um, if we had the research to connect good social outcomes and um, lower costs associated with social ills as arising from it
0: moving on to the current preoccupation with covid 19 uh, the impact it seems to me on 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 families and individuals has been quite profound uh, and and most of it Uh, in a very stressful way, homeschooling, everything that goes with that. We see um, quite alarming reports of of large numbers of teenagers reporting to emergency wards having self-harmed, all that kind of thing. So I guess where I'm leading on this is a cost-benefit analysis. We know what the benefit was, what we wanted the benefit to be, but I suspect the cost may be far larger not just economically, but in human terms, So we even calculated. Is that something that, that worries you and your colleagues?
1: Yes, it is. Um, from the earliest part of um, the Queensland lockdowns, and obviously that's sort of the environment in which I have most closely experienced it, I called for the Queensland government to be um, tracking and quantifying the measures of those other harms. Um, which, of course, they steadfastly refused to do. But the fact that Lifeline had its busiest three days in their entire history this month, I think, um, says a lot about what this is doing to people's mental health. Um, The amount of government support that's been needed to keep the economy alive speaks to the economic impact. And um, the, the consequences that we've seen in other jurisdictions Um, when people emerge from lockdown around um, dysfunctional relationships, I I think are pretty significant too. I am heartened though by the fact that the government has a plan to get us back to normal, that um, we have done serious research to understand the point at which we can safely start to reopen give people the hope they need to hang on till we can get those high vaccination rates happening for those people whose health and conscience permits them to do so. Um, I, you know, if you can, it's it's our ticket back to sanity in many ways. Um, it's, it's absolutely, um, I think, really encouraging to see this government doing what's necessary to um, help people... Have a pathway to to normality. It's it's never been more necessary. I don't think anybody contemplated um, at the time they first starting we're all started saying we're all in this together um, that we would still be grappling with this almost two years on. Um, and I'm greatly encouraged by the way that the government has, particularly in the last um, week, started to ramp up the. Um, the public understanding of the path forward, and to keep the, um, shall we say, robust encouragement on the on the premiers to play their part in helping people get back to enjoying the the learning and the working and the socialising and the um, the travel that is a part of enjoying this amazing country. It's a part of the lifestyle that we all love so much. Um, the price is. As we increase our vaccination rate is becoming um, too high, much too high.
0: Well, that's right. and because and one of the one of the issues has been locking down state borders? I, I don't know about you, but I, I never thought I never imagined in my wildest dreams we'd have a day when the states were putting up roadblocks and and you had to get a visa to go to different states. So, all, all the problems of crossing borders but without the duty free. And uh, the, you know, but how could this come about when the borders were never meant to be used like that? I mean, the Queensland border, as I understand it, technically runs right through the middle of the Gold Coast Airport main runway. It does, yeah. So how did, how is this, using, putting your your lawyer's hat on, your knowledge of constitutional law, your involvement now as assistant to the Attorney-General, how do they get away with this? Why, why why can't why can't we say you know we're a country where allows free passage for citizens?
1: Section ninety two of the Constitution provides that um, intercourse between the states should be absolutely free, and there is not a lot of authority around this um, provisions interpretation. But the cases that we do have. Um, largely revolve around the, the right of people to um, sell goods from one state into another state without being taxed in in the process um, for moving those goods across um, state lines. The last time we had a case that was about the freedom of an Australian citizen to move from state to state was during the time of the, the Latham Court. You know, we're talking back in wartime, and... Um, the High Court there upheld the right of the woman who travelled from um, from Melbourne to Sydney on the train and who got off the train and was arrested to um, be set free because it was the court's view at that point in time that even in circumstances of war and the like, um, our founding fathers intended for movement between the states to be absolutely free. And yet um, the, the authority we got from the High Court early in the pandemic um, suggested that the extreme measures of border closures were um, proportionate um, incursions on the right of individuals to move between states. It's, it's not what our founding fathers intended. When you go back to um, the constitutional convention debates as Um, a a person like me does from time to time, you can see that they never intended for Australia to have internal walls and um, I think it's a really sad indictment on the kind of cultural state versus state parochialism um, that some premiers have capitalised upon (coughs) Anastasia Palaszczuk Um, but the opportunity that lies ahead I think um, is that the decision that was made by the High Court early in the pandemic rested upon a few factual matters in determining that it was a proportionate response. Um, and it was resting on the fact that at that time there was no vaccine. Well, now we have plentiful access to vaccines and, you know, three to choose from. The It also rested upon the fact that um, it was proving very deadly at that point in time. Whereas what we know of uh, at least the Delta strain is that once vaccinated, it is much lower impact on the individual. Um, And so that severity factor isn't there anymore. I think if the matter were reconsidered today, we'd find a very different result. Um, But in any event, I think um, the, if we're getting a little bit sort of legally philosophical, You could arguably make the case that um, Commonwealth could try and cover the field here um, and take steps to, in a sense, crowd out the state's action on this, but that's my um, legal creativity spitballing rather than any statement of government policy.
0: (laughs) And that's not not the only strain in the relation between state and federal governments that we've had, is it?
1: Well, well, no, not at all. Is,
0: well, how much appetite is there, do you think, to fit within the government to try and iron out some of these things before we have another pandemic?
1: Look, I, I think if you put to a referendum, um, say at the next federal election, you know, should we have the federal government dealing solely with um, these types of matters? I think the the frustration of Australians would speak loudly in favour of having a single government handling these things. And I say that with some pain as a committed Federalist, but that the, the difficulty of having to deal with, um, you know, Premiers, some of whom have demonstrated quite sort of craven behaviour um, and blatantly political, I would suggest, abuses of their authority, I think has made the Australian people quite cynical about aspects of the Federation. I think that's very sad. The, the other thing we've learned about... Um, the need for federation reform through the course of the pandemic is that while the Commonwealth Government was picking up all the bills associated with um, heavy-handed public health responses, there was no incentive for state governments to um, open up the economy and get people back to work because um, all of their political bread was buttered Um, on ensuring that there were no people becoming ill um, and they didn't have to bear any of the consequences on the other side. Um, It's the most persuasive, I think, and um, readily accessible for the the non-legal nerd example of vertical fiscal imbalance and why we need to deal with it. Um, If we want to have good, accountable governments, governments that perform and governments that... Australians are able to uh, reward or punish according to their ability to deliver, then we need to align their ability to raise funds um, with the ability to spend funds so that the decisions they're making are um, both short-term fiscally accountable but um, but long-term preparing for an economic, are willing to be a much more active custodian of.
0: Staying with, with legal matters and you're the kind of things that you, you follow as assistant to the Attorney General, you know, I think the Mendes Research Centre put in a submission to the Australian Law Reform Commission's inquiry into judicial impartiality, famously rejected by the ALRC for what we think are quite spurious reasons. Uh, but in the process, of course, it, it, it was subject to the End effect. So it got a lot of publicity. Uh, <laughs> That they didn't expect the Streisand effect, named after Barbara Streisand who tried to suppress a picture of coastal erosion at her house, and it became the biggest story in, uh, of its time. So that 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 that's the, the reports out there, and um, our, our our response, rather, our submission is out there, and so essentially what our, we're saying is that you, you, the ju- the judiciary, judges, should be measured by. Uh, there are ways of measuring them. There are metrics by which you can measure the performance of judges, whether it's the way their uh, judgments go in controversial matters. If, do they go all for the employer or all for the union in, in IR matters? Uh, but also the possible metrics over the number of times they uh, there are successful appeals against their decisions. I would have thought that's a sort of not a great thing to be doing terribly often as a judge. But there's this resistance uh, in the judiciary, for that, uh, what do you make of that? And and it, it, uh, it's, why why should the judiciary think that this is of no use to their profession um, when every other profession, you know, metrics like that are becoming quite important to judging customer service?
1: It's interesting, isn't it? The the separation of powers um, between legislature, executive, and judiciary. Um, is an important accountability measure. But I think there are corners of the legal profession um, that would seek to exploit that protection for purposes um, that are really unbecoming of the bench. And I'll give you a, an example from, from recent history. Um, it. It used to be the case that once somebody was a member of the bench, they would never comment um, in the press. They would never um, weigh in on partisan political issues and they would never because it was um, not consistent with the duties of the role. That was encroached upon in a very well-meaning way, I think, um, by you know, do-gooding judges wanting to contribute on this issue or that um, in a relatively sort of charitable or philanthropic kind of way, um, whether it's on you know, aspects of humanitarian concerns, for instance, that might derive from um, their interest in human rights law or um, whether or not you, know, it, you can't help though when you go into um, the the field of commentary beyond the cases for which you're responsible, ultimately having um, political positions on things. And it has gone down a path that means, um, if you take the example of the the time of the appointment of Justice Carmody um, to the Chief Justice's role in Queensland, you had judges behaving in an outright political way um, in a manner that I thought um, quite brought... bench into disrepute. Now um, that's not to go over all ground but it's to say there has been a real change in the way that the bench, um, speaking as a group, seem to view their responsibility um, to live the fairly cloistered life uh, once they accept a role with the um, enormous responsibility and privilege um, that being on the bench entails. So to get back to your question, um, yes, there should be metrics. Yes, we should expect judges to apply the law um, as written, without fear or favour, without attempts to um, interpret in the political cause of the day, um, a la the Victorian judge who decided to find a um, an implied duty to... Um, Protect the future from climate change, for instance, in a um, case about the mine approvals that um, were given by by a government in relation to a particular mining development. There's, I mean, these are acts of extraordinary activism. And when judges start to behave like politicians, we don't just ruin the jurisprudence, Uh, we undermine people's trust in the judiciary, and in doing so, bring down the institution as a whole. When people start to talk about how, oh, no one trusts politicians, no one trusts judges, um, it's more than just the occasional person misbehaving. It's a cumulative effect of um, matters that, even if well-meaning, chip away at the integrity of the institution, no matter how well-meaning the people in it might be.
0: Which brings me back to Robert Menzies, I guess. He, he said that, uh, uh, you know, an independent, fair and independent judiciary was was one of the bedrocks of civil society. Um, without it, we're in real trouble. Mm. I think that's right.
1: And people propose all kinds of solutions for this. You know, some will say, oh, we need a judicial commission. Um, a judicial commission might be able to uh, keep track of some of those metrics of appeals or, um, you know, notice some outliers in the stats but ultimately, um, where they've been applied in other places, they're really only very good at removing pretty, pretty badly performing <laughs> examples rather than driving a kind of outstanding performance. Um, hope I've articulated that well. The, the judicial bias question, I think, is something that really does play on the minds of Australians and particularly in the family law space where the matters that are being dealt with are just so personal um, and so um, so confronting an experience for people who are already going through what's likely to be one of the most traumatic experiences of their, their life and the breakdown of the family is right up there. Um, if people don't believe they're getting a fair go, uh, it, it seriously chips away at confidence. And so how could you try and address this? Well, at the moment, at least in the federal court, we have an arrangement where the chief justice is... Um, able to staff the full court bench uh, for hearing appeals with whomever he or she thinks is appropriate. Um, we've always given Chief Justices a lot of latitude on that front, um, but it's also interesting and disturbing um, that we observe the mangling of jurisprudence in circumstances where some of these really badly underperforming judges um, are given opportunity after opportunity in... Um, disciplines where they have not demonstrated the kind of, um, let's say, even-handedness in the outcome, which is not to speak to the merits of individual cases, of course, um, that you might hope to see. There's there's a almost a political tactic that can be applied there, should a Chief Justice wish to do so, um, in staffing the bench with people who um, share a particular point of view um, and and might want to achieve it. Even that administrative power has the potential to empower great activism and great political behaviour in a way that I would suggest is inconsistent. Um, so we've got a lot of work to do here and so um, I'm really pleased that the Menzies Research Centre's contribution on the subject has um, perhaps inadvertently been given a greater opportunity to be seen and heard and understood by Australians from all walks of life.
0: Great. We're all about not just starting debates but changing them here, so it's, it's good for us. Finally uh, you've you've been allocated what I think is a very winnable third spot of the Senate ticket for Queensland next I sure
1: time. hope so. <laughs> um,
0: I don't want to sow any seeds of doubt but but but, but should you should you not uh Get, pre, get, get a get 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 selected again for the Senate. I, I think there's a lot of people in Australia who would hope that's not going to be the last your involvement in politics.
1: My involvement in the Liberal Party has never really been about a political career. It's been about a belief that there is a certain um, value in the individual who, when they um, go into the world with an equality of opportunity and not outcome, and are rewarded for their effort, um, that they can go and achieve their version of the perfect life without the government telling them what that should be. Um, They can raise a family if that's what they want. They can have a career if that's what they want. And um, they can otherwise aspire to reach their wildest dreams in this great country um, of aspiration. That stays with me, whether I have the opportunity to sit in a red chair in our beautiful Senate or not. Um, But can I say this? If I'm not successful, and I very much hope that won't be the case, the very fact that I am likely to lead a better remunerated probably more relaxing, um, and otherwise very fulfilling life um, is precisely the reason why it would be a good idea for Australians to keep me. <laughs> because, <Yeah>. and and <laughs> I don't say this out of personal sort of, um, uh, a personal mission here. What I'm trying to say to those who listen is that we really need to make sure that our parliament is with people of um, great options in the real world um, who are running capable businesses, who have distinguished professions, who have incredible um, ability or life experience or courage to come to this kind of job because um, that's how we do our best for Australians. That's how we build a team that is capable of solving the big problems and it's how we Um, make sure that we protect our institution for the long term you kind of want to have people here who've got a really really good um, plan b shall we say and my plan b is pretty darn good
0: (laughs) excellent amanda Amanda stoker thank you very much for joining us on water cooler
1: good on you nick thank you so much for having me and thank you to your listeners for um, bearing with me
0: (laughs) (laughs) thank you been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the menzies research center we'd like to bring you many more of course and you can help us by subscribing from just ten dollars a month go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe i'm nick cater and thank you for listening